Tonight we'll be in Genesis 12, as Preston said, so if you would be turning there in your Bibles. Back in July we looked at the call of Abram that was in the first half of this chapter, laid out in 11.27 through 12.9. Abram was a pagan living in Mesopotamia when God called him to leave his homeland of Ur and travel to Canaan. He leaves everything that he knows and then he goes to a foreign land where God promises him several blessings. So let's recap. Uh, and set the context for those who weren't able to make it last time. Let's read verses 1 through 3, and then we'll read 6 and 7 as well. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram passed, and then verse 6 and 7, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. As we looked back in July, there were four blessings that we talked about. The first blessing was the blessing of a great nation. We see that in verse 2. It's straightforward. And I will make of you a great nation. Sarah had been barren up until this point. And it even makes note of her barrenness at the end of chapter 11. And yet God promises that a nation would come from Abram. And Abram ain't no dummy. He knows that to have a nation you have to have some babies. And that's exactly what God's promising him, that as chapter 13 would say, that his offspring would be as the dust of the earth. The second blessing is the blessing of Abram himself. We see that in the second part of verse 2 and 3. It says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. Abram was set apart from all others. God chose him for a particular purpose. A great nation was to come from him, but this nation wouldn't just be great in number. It was peculiar. It was set apart for God. It was a people called by his name and distinct in every way from other nations. The third blessing that we looked at was the blessing of the nations through Abram, all nations. Verse 3, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Even though Israel was to be a distinct nation from the rest of the world, all nations would be blessed through them. Through Israel we have received special revelation from God in the scriptures. We see what holiness looks like who God is, why there's separation between God and man, how restoration is to be achieved between God and man. All this is revealed to us in the scriptures that we receive from through Israel, but most importantly we have Christ who came through Israel. He came through the nation of Israel and he would be a blessing to all nations. Abram was the starting point by which all of these blessings would come. And the final blessing that we looked at in chapter 12 was the blessing of a promised land. Genesis 12, 7, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. 
So Abram left Ur not knowing where he was going and he gets to the land of Canaan and God appears to him and says, this is the land that I'm going to give to you and your offspring. And we looked at the type of land that it was last time in Deuteronomy 8. It says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that He's given you. So he lays out all these blessings in the first part of chapter 12. And if we end there, it seems like everything's going really well for Abram until verse 10. So let's read verses 10 through 20 to see our text tonight. Now there was a famine in the land... So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. <clears throat> so again, Abram's in Ur... And he travels over a thousand miles by foot to the land of Canaan. And God said, this is the land that you're getting. And no longer had he arrived there than a famine break out in the land. This marvelous, much anticipated promised land that he's been looking forward to. A land the scriptures later say is a land of wheat, barley, vines, figs, pomegranates, olives, and honey. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, that you shall eat and be full. In that land, a famine breaks out. And it forces Abram to leave the land and go to Egypt. It very well may have seemed to Abram that the last blessing was already kind of fallen short. That what, what am I going to do with a land that I can't even live in? It's stricken with famine. What am I going to do with it? And this famine leads him to leave. And it would have been wise for him to seek wisdom from God at this point in time, but there's no indication in Scripture that that happens. He comes up with this plan to go to Egypt on his own. And the rest of the passage 
we see that Abram is not trusting in God to fulfill the promises that he has given him. Whether or not the famine is the catalyst which leads him to think this way or act this way, we don't know. We don't know all his thoughts and his feelings. But at the very least, I don't believe it a stretch to say that this would have put a strain on the faith that he had in what God had promised him. I want you to think about yourself if you were in this situation. How often do things not go just the way that you think that they should go? You've been diligent to honor God. You've sought to be faithful. But still, everything goes to pot. And in that moment, what is your first thought? Does God even care? This isn't what's supposed to happen. Have you ever thought that? We have our scriptures and our answers that we give on Wednesday nights. God works all things for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. God is sovereign and nothing is outside of His control. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. God works all things according to the counsel of His will and whatever He purposes will come to pass. We hear those time and again on Wednesday night to answers to various questions. And all these things are completely true, but in that moment, we don't believe them. Or at least our actions don't line up with what we say we believe. When things don't play out exactly the way we think they should, frequently our faith is shaken and it's displayed in our actions. We have to always be aware of this. We have to be reminding ourselves of these theological truths that we talk about on Wednesday nights. And it can't just be things that we know up here, but it has to be truths that we're living out day to day, even during the difficult moments that we encounter. And that's exactly where Abram finds himself here in a difficult moment. He encounters the famine in the land and decides to sojourn in Egypt until the famine is over. Some people say that him going to Egypt at all was a sin, that he wasn't trusting in God to preserve him through the famine. I don't believe that to be the case. Um, I don't think it was wise that he didn't seek counsel from the Lord before he went. But God doesn't micromanage our actions to every single movement. He expects us to observe our situation, to see what's going on, to make wise decisions with what we see. If there's no food where Abram is, the only logical decision is to go where there is food. I believe the sin begins in verse 11 on their journey to Egypt. So read with me verses 11 through 13. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Here we see Abram's mind to begin to work. He's already come to the conclusion that if he says Sarah is his wife, that they're going to kill him. He knows it is a fact. And so he devises this scheme rather than, again, consult God for wisdom after he's come to this conclusion He begins to figure out his own way of doing things. He didn't have the mindset of David who says in Psalm 31, 
But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. David knew that the Lord was who determines the future. It's not Abram. Though he can speculate about what would happen, it's the Lord who will ultimately determine what happens. And it's the Lord who could deliver him from his enemies, the Egyptians in this situation. But he doesn't trust that God would preserve his life from the Egyptians. And then he plans all of his actions based upon these foreseen facts that he's already come to. The first two blessings that God had told him have already slipped his mind. The blessing of a great nation and the blessing of Abram himself. If he goes there and the Egyptians kill him, there's not going to be a great nation coming from him, is there? And if they kill him, his name's not going to be made great. It's going to fade away with time. So he's already forgotten these promises and God would fall short on what he has promised to do if Abram dies. I believe the famine is what has caused Abram to think this way about God. It seems the promise of the land isn't going real well, so why do I think that God's going to hold up his deal on the other promises he's made? And so I've got to come up with a plan to save my life. And I think that's why he doesn't consult God in these matters. The plan he comes up with in no way honors God. In order to preserve his own life, he resorts to deception and cowardice. He says to Sarah, Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. About this statement, Kenneth Matthews makes this observation. He says, The genius of the ruse was its half-truth. Abram could claim the truth, She is my sister, since they had the same father, and at the same time he avoids reference to her as his wife. We're introduced to Sarai in chapter 11 when it says, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. But in chapter 20 we get a little more background to who Sarai is. Abram does the same thing in chapter 20 with Abimelech. He lies and says that Sarai is his sister again. And the Lord reveals the truth to Abimelech. And when confronted, this is what Abraham says. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. We see that Sarai was not only Terah's daughter-in-law by way of marriage, but she was also his daughter by birth, just by a different woman. So in Abram's order to Sarah, he was not telling her to blatantly lie, but he, it was completely his goal to be deceptive. He wasn't giving a, a clarification on the family tree. He could have been in a song by Ray Stevens, but... Uh, that's not what he's doing here. He is seeking to be deceptive and save his own life. We see his cowardice simultaneously playing out here. Kenneth Matthews finishes his comments on the statement saying, The folly of Abram's plan was its consequences. Although he would save his life, 
He jeopardized his future by placing at risk Sarai, the mother of the promised son. So in the last few weeks we've talked about gender roles several times and how the woman is the weaker vessel and how the man is supposed to lead, guide, and protect his wife. And here Abram has no problem leading and guiding his wife to do exactly what he wants. But he has no thoughts whatsoever about protecting her. He seems to have no issue putting Sarai in harm's way. His schemes do not only involve deceiving the Egyptians though. I believe that he's also deceiving Sarai at the same time. Look at how he presents his plan again. Verses 11 through 13. As he's talking to Sarai, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. He disguises his intention here. He manipulates his wife by playing on her emotions. You're a beautiful woman and they're going to kill me and I'm doing this for you. When all he's really doing is saving his own life. He tosses Sarai out with hopes that she'll be okay in order to protect himself from any harm. He shows himself to be a coward. We as men must seek to be proactive in caring for our wives in every area of life. Spiritually and physically. As Matt noted on Wednesday night, we don't stay home with the kids when our kids are sick and send our wife to church because it's our responsibility to make sure our wives are understanding the sermons correctly. We need to know what they're reading in the scriptures. We need to know what they're listening to or watching while we're at work. We must give them guidance on how to act in difficult situations. We are responsible for our wives, and if they are lacking in some area spiritually, it's because we are lacking as shepherding them. Also, physically, we must never risk the well-being of our wife in order to gain something for ourselves. If a risk must be had, you need to take it yourself. Even down to the smallest thing, if there's a noise in the other end of the house while you're lying in bed at night, don't hand your wife a gun and say, hey, will you go check that out? Or if there's a snake in the basement, don't hide behind her and say, hey, that might bite me, will you get it? Because it might bite her too. If there's a stranger in the yard, don't send her out and say, hey, can you go see what's going on out there? Be a man and go out there and protect your wife. Don't put her in dangerous situations in order to save yourself. But what Abram plans to do here is no small thing like we were joking about right there. He isn't sending his wife to the other end of the house to check on a noise. He is endangering her in this plan for if the Egyptians do take her into their house, she would be outside the protection of her own home. He would be unable to know what's going on around her, if she's in any danger, what situation she may be in. He would know nothing about that. But it doesn't seem to matter to him. 
Now, I'm being pretty heavy on Abram to give him the benefit of the doubt, though I don't think he deserves it, and it definitely doesn't clear him of any guilt. I read someone say that he may have possibly deceived himself into thinking, if she is my sister, I can protect her better. Because there's going to need to be a bride's price paid. And maybe that negotiation can take some time and I can draw this out long enough to endure the famine and then we can leave the country and we're all good. But even if that is what he was thinking, which I don't believe it to be the case, he would find out soon that he's unable to protect her nonetheless. As husbands, this is not how we treat our wives. But rather we are to be imitators of Christ in how he treats his bride. Listen to Ephesians 5 on how Christ treats his bride. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way... Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Christ loves his bride. He nourishes her. He cherishes her. He does everything within his power to ensure her safety. And that is how we as husbands should be treating our wives. But despite his lack of consideration for Sarai, she submits to what he's told her to do nonetheless and plays her part. Let's go down into verse 14 through 17. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So no matter what schemes Abram had devised in his mind, exactly what he thought would happen did happen. The Egyptians did take note of how beautiful Sarai was. And upon hearing the news, Pharaoh did take her into his household. But at this point in the story, the lie has been told. Everyone thinks that Sarai is Abram's wife or sister. And even though Abram most likely hates the situation and wants his wife back, he has to maintain the lie. So Pharaoh brings him all these wonderful gifts And he has to receive them with a smile on his face, even though inwardly hating the situation that he finds himself in. He falls into what many of us have probably found ourselves in at some point in the past. He lies. And when you lie, what winds up happening? You have to lie again. You have to lie again in order to maintain that first lie, don't you? And this becomes a perpetual process that you can't seem to get out of. We must adhere to God's law when it says, Do not lie. It may seem at times profitable in the moment. We may deceive ourselves into thinking that we're protecting something or gaining something by lying. 
But if we fall into lying, it never ends well. To protect the original lie, a continuation of lies have to be maintained. And even if you're never caught, that lie has to forever remain as fact from this point forward. And every time it comes up, that voice in the back of your head is nagging about how that's a lie and you want to conceal it and keep it. If you don't get caught, you'll still give an account to it to God one day. No one will know that you're lying except yourself and the Lord. So I would challenge you right now, there's a possibility that that's one of y'all. If you find yourself in the midst of lies right now, quit deceiving yourself. Confess your sin. Repent. It could be with somebody at work. It could be with somebody in here. It could be with your spouse or with your kids. Don't deceive yourself any longer and justify it. Confess the lie, repent, and restore the relationships that have been broken. Now, in this series of events, we've seen that Abram was clearly not ready to defend his wife, but God was. It says in verse 17, The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Despite Abram's lack of faith, the Lord remains faithful to the promises that he has said would take place. He has set Abram apart for a particular purpose, and he's going to ensure that that purpose comes about. If Sarai remains in Pharaoh's household, then the blessings promised to Abram won't happen. They won't have kids. There won't be a great nation that comes to them. But Moses reemphasizes here at the end of verse 17 that Sarai is Abram's wife. Even though 19 tells us that Pharaoh took her for his wife, this was an illegitimate marriage. Pharaoh abuses his authority, does not even request that Sarai come into his household. It says that he came and took her into his household and later gave Abram compensation for his so-called sister. It may seem that Pharaoh is unjustly punished in this story, though, since he did indeed believe Sarai to be his sister. He wasn't trying to take another man's wife. But you may have heard it said that ignorance of the law is not an excuse. And that's the same thing here. Ignorance of who Sarai is is no excuse. He has still taken another man's wife. In chapter 20, we see a similar scenario happen with Abimelech. And when uh, confronted, Abram said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah... But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And he hadn't even slept with her. But he is still condemned for taking another man's wife. And that's what Pharaoh's done here. Through the abuse of his power and the lust for Sarai, he made a rush decision which put him in this situation. These were foreigners who came into his land whom he knew little about, and because of his position of authority, he feels he has the right to take this woman as his wife. But I think that there's more to his guilt in this situation. I believe that uh, 
when you compare this scenario with the two other similar accounts in 20 and 26, I believe that we can see that Pharaoh actually slept with Sarai. If you look at chapter 20 and 26, turn there, and we're going to look at two quick accounts that are almost identical to this, except in one particular way. Starting in, verse, in chapter 20, in verse 1, it says, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister, and she herself said, He is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands have I done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Now 26, same similar situation with Isaac. Starting in verse 6. It says, So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So we see the same deception in all three chapters, 12, 20, and 26. But the thing that's unique in chapter 12 is the judgment upon Pharaoh. In chapter 20 and 26, there is no judgment. There's a warning, but if Abimelech returns his wife, then, then he'll live. But there's no plagues. The Lord specifically tells Abimelech in chapter 20, It was I who kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. In those two chapters, God shows mercy in restraining the people from touching Sarah and Rebekah. But there's no mercy talked about in chapter 12. But there is judgment that's brought upon him. And that's why I think that. That's why the condemnation was all the more upon Pharaoh and he is not unjustly punished here. Sarai is the one who God intends to bring about his blessings through and he intervenes in the story here to bring Abram and Sarai back together. This deliverance was made necessary because of Abram's deception. 
But God is faithful to His Word and does not leave His promises in the hands of men who are fallen. He will accomplish what He's purposed. So now let's look at verse 18 through 20 back in our text. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. We don't know how Pharaoh found out that Sarai was Abram's wife. Maybe God told him, like in chapter 20 with Abimelech, he could have possibly seen an interaction between Sarai and Abram, like in 26. Maybe when the plagues are happening in the household of Pharaoh, they're not happening to Sarai, which leads him to this conclusion. All we know that is that he finds out. And when he finds out, he's not slow to return the wife. He's ready for the plagues to end. He rebukes Abram for what Abram's done, and Abram, most likely because he knows he's undeniably guilty, does not answer him in return. Then, in order to remove them as far from Pharaoh's household as possible, he has his own men escort them out of the country. Now, our text comes to a conclusion here. And it seems at first glance that we've went through this whole scenario and Abram's done nothing but profit. He was able to stay in Egypt during the famine. He was treated well by Pharaoh while he was there. He was lavished with gifts. He was able to take those gifts with him when he left. But did anything bad happen to him as a consequence of his sin? It may seem at times that our sin does not have consequences, but let's not think little of our sin because of that, because oftentimes the consequences come on down the road and we don't see them in the moment. And I believe that to be here. I think there's several consequences, but I'm going to highlight a couple of them. In Scripture, we usually have a description of major events in a character's life, but we don't have the day-in, day-out events that are going on. But the characters in Scripture are just people like us. And Abram and Sarai are married just like any marriage. And no doubt this situation has put some tension in the relationship. Sarai's husband, rather than protect her, has just willingly allowed her to be taken into another man's home and made his wife. He didn't try to protect her, but rather, before they even got there, he was the one that came up with the plan. Do you think that would cause some trust issues? I think so. And it can make for a distant, cold environment when you have trust issues within the home, can it? We have to be loving our spouses. We live day to day with one another, and it can take a long time to repair the damage done just through one wrong. And this is a severe wrong that is going to take a long time to heal. This morning, Matt talked about the state of marriages in our country and how they've been in a fierce decline in quality in the last 50 years. In a conversation the other night, 
I didn't realize this, but Danielle pointed out that 50% of marriages end in divorce. And I checked it out. That's true. But why is that? It's because husbands and wives think about what's best for them than what's best for their spouse. Frequently at work, when guys are talking, I hear how horribly they talk about their spouse. It's constant. And it's very rare that you hear them compliment them. And even if I compliment Amanda in the midst of these conversations, it's usually disregarded with a, well, just wait a couple years. That'll end. That'll end. But if I bring her food to work and let them have it, then I've heard the comment, well, there's a woman you need to keep. (laughs) But why is that? Why, why is she a woman I need to keep in that moment, but all these good things are going to end in this other? It's because their bellies are satisfied. They care more about what their spouse can do for them in possibly feeding them good food than loving their spouse. Your husband and wife, or wife, your husband or wife, <laughs> <laughs> is the person that God has blessed you to be with day in and day out. And we're to cherish them. We're to care for that person. We're to be sacrificial for that person. We're to do nothing out of selfishness, but consider one another more important than ourselves. If we live out our marriages in this way in the culture around us, then we'll be a clear light There'll be a staunch difference between the marriages out there in the world and the marriages that are seen here in the church. And that's an excellent conversation starter for when people start talking about how bad their marriages are. About how excellent Christ's love is for His bride. Let me tell you how Christ's love plays out in me and my wife's marriage. There's a great intro to the gospel. Let us be lights through our marriages in the community that we live in. Let's not imitate what's put out there and what we see all the time. Another severe consequence of Abram's actions here in Egypt, I believe, is the birth of Ishmael. You say, what in the world does Ishmael have to do with Egypt? Or how is that a bad consequence? When we come to Genesis chapter 16, Sarah still has not born any children. She's still barren and she comes to the conclusion, well, maybe the child isn't supposed to come through me. Maybe she's to come through my servant, Hagar. And she throws this idea out and Abram does take Hagar as his wife. And Hagar does become pregnant. And the only thing that does between Abram and Sarai is to cause more conflict. But on top of the conflict that's created between Abram and Sarai, there's this child that's born to Hagar. And the child's name is Ishmael. There's a prophecy made by the Lord in chapter 16. It says that Ishmael would have his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he should dwell over against all his kinsmen. There would be constant conflict between the Ishmaelites and the Israelites throughout history. And eventually there would be this debate that arises over who the promise is to come through. Was it Abram's first son? 
Ishmael through the Ishmaelites? Or was it Isaac through the Israelites? And who proclaims that the promise comes through Ishmael? Islam. But still yet, how do we connect Ishmael and Egypt? Well, the slave Hagar. When did she come to be with Abram and Sarai? In verse 1 in chapter 16, we have Hagar introduced. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. A female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And where did Abram acquire all these female Egyptian servants? Well, the Pharaoh gave them to him as compensation for taking his wife, for his wife, his sister, for his wife. Had this deception not taken place, he would not have received these female Egyptian servants. He would not have married Hagar. Ishmael would not have been born. And there wouldn't be another son to debate whether or not the promise is to come through. This is a severe consequence, isn't it, that we still see today. And the last consequence that I want to highlight is the consequence that comes through Abram being a father. A theme we see all throughout Scripture and even see in the culture around us is generational blessings and curses. A trait that Abram modeled multiple times throughout his lifetime that we've already seen is a trait of deception. And we see that same trait played out in his descendants. Let's look at just a handful of these and we'll see how deception just continues to play out. We just looked at Isaac and how he did the exact same deception that we see here in chapter 12 in chapter 26. He claims Rebekah to be his, wife, his sister instead of his wife in order to save his own life from Abimelech. With Jacob, Jacob's entire life was full of deception. That was like his thing. But right from the very beginning when he's introduced in 27, we see him pretending to be his brother and stealing his brother's blessing that was due to Esau. With Jacob's sons, they're jealous of their brother Joseph. Joseph's their father's favorite son, and so they come up with this plan to get back at Joseph. Well, let's kill him. Well, they get a conscience and they say, let's not kill him, let's throw him in this pit so he just dies of hunger. But then they see a caravan and they say, well, we could profit off of this. And so they sell Joseph into slavery. And the deception comes here. They take his coat, they tear it to shreds, they soak it in goat's blood, and they take it to their father. And they say, well, he must have died. And they let his father endure this lie for years until they're rejoined again in Egypt years later. And then probably the best known deception is with David when he takes another man's wife, Bathsheba, and she becomes pregnant. And in order to cover it up, he brings Uriah home to sleep with his wife. But then he won't. So he sends him to die on the front lines and then takes Bathsheba as his own wife to cover it up. Deception is plagued throughout all of Abram's 
lineage. And it stems from the lifestyle that he models for his children. Our kids are constantly watching us. We are their example for how we're to live. And they're going to mimic us. Whether it's good or bad, they're going to mimic us. We have to constantly be aware of what we're doing in front of them. When they do something good, strongly encourage them. Explain to them why it was good, what they did. When you do something bad in front of them, repent to them. Tell them why what you did was wrong. You're not perfect, and they don't need to think that you're perfect. What they need is to see you humble yourself and repent when you do wrong. Because that's what they need to know how to do. They don't need to know how to be perfect because they never will be. But when they fall short, they need to know how to run to the Lord and repent for their shortcomings. And you need to point them to Him and how He perfectly obeyed God. And how He made the ultimate sacrifice on their behalf that they may be able to repent of their sins and have atonement through Him. Scripture makes it clear that Abraham had true faith. And that is not in question, but he was a man just like any other man. Even though he was justified, he still falls into sin at times. And that's true of us as well. We will never be perfect in this life. But it is no longer our sin does no longer have ultimate power over us if you're in Christ. You've been set free from bondage to that sin if you're in Christ. You're able to conquer that sin if you're in Christ. But we must rest in the promises that God has given to us. We must daily remind ourselves that God is in control of all situations and that He does work all things for our good. Even in the midst of famine or any trial that may be coming into your lives, we must not allow our circumstances to affect our faith and drive our actions away from the Lord. We, ha- must have, we must persevere and strive to be like Christ in all areas of life. You're not going to do it perfectly, but when you don't do it perfectly, repent and trust in Christ and what He did.